This episode is brought to you by Ahmed Tea. Ahmed Tea is one of our favorite tea companies and partners. At Your Service has hosted several dinners and tea experiences with them. Not only because they're a family-run company who care about supporting and facilitating great storytelling, but also because their tea is actually our favorite. The lemon ginger is my daily go-to to start my day, and their cold brew is the best take on iced tea I have ever had. For the summer, I love the peach and passion fruit with a freshly squeezed lemon served in a big mason jar filled with ice. We are so thrilled to partner with them on this episode, and all of us are currently drinking hot cups of Ahmed tea during this conversation. Make sure you cozy up and grab yours at ahmedteausa.com. That's A-H-M-A-D-T-E-A-U-S-A.com. Three, two, one. This episode's storyteller is someone very close to Adam and I's heart. Also, spoiler alert, Adam has finally agreed to grace us with his presence on Podcast Noor, and we can thank Seth Godin for that. Seth Godin is an author, speaker, entrepreneur, and thought leader. To us, he is a dear friend and teacher. He has taught Adam how to juggle. He's shared life lessons with us through his adventures of building canoes and baking new breads. And his mentorship and guidance has played a huge role in how we build at your service. In addition to launching one of the world's most popular blogs, which I love sharing snippets of on Instagram stories because they are always so relevant. Seth has written 20 best-selling books, including The Practice, Lynchpin, Purple Cow, Tribes, and What to Do When It's Your Turn, parentheses, and it's always your turn. His book, This Is Marketing, was an instant bestseller around countries in the world. In fact, Adam studied Seth's books in business school. And last year, Seth spearheaded an incredible collaborative book project called The Carbon Almanac, alongside 1,000 volunteers. The Carbon Almanac is a must-read for facts and what we can do about climate change. Seth's latest book, Song of Significance, is my new favorite. And to Seth, it is his most important work yet. Adam and I were lucky enough to read a draft of Song of Significance before it was published. Seth hand-delivered a copy of the book to us at a viewing party for one of Morocco's last matches in the World Cup. He handed us the book with a big smile and asked us to read it, and then we would have to talk about it in person. Because this book absolutely requires in-person conversations. A conversation we'll be sharing with you now. I am so grateful for Seth's vulnerability and leadership in this storytelling session. All of our conversations get straight into it. So without further ado, our dear friend and teacher, Seth Godin. Okay. All right. We have speed? You know why they say that? I know that I I know when it's said, but why do they say that actually? Because in the old days, a piece of tape was moving through the machine and you had to wait for it to speed up. Because if you started too soon, it would go the first couple of seconds. So speed means it's turning. Wait, so why do we still say it? The same reason we say MOS when we're shooting video without sound, because that's German for meet alt sound. And that's because those are the pioneers of recording. But isn't it inter- interesting that we say things that we don't actually know why? Like dialing a phone? Yeah, I get it. 
dialing. What was your newsletter the other day was standing and smiling for a photo. Oh my gosh, yeah, we loved that one. That was really funny. Um, All right, Seth. Wow, this is very exciting. We've actually been talking about how we wanted this conversation to happen for a while. And I feel like on the heels of Song of Significance, it feels like divine timing, perfect timing. And um, this is the first podcast interview that I've ever invited Adam onto as well. So welcome, Adam. Thank you. Here's the key to me saying, yes, you brought Adam as bait. Yes, that's true. I did do that. I did. And um, the reason I wanted Adam here and to be in conversation, us three together, is because this is how our conversations tend to happen. And they are some of my favorite ones. And I think that it could be really, it could really be of service for us to share one of them out loud. And um, we're so excited to be here and talk to you and to celebrate you. I'm so glad you came. We're missing Helene. We are missing work, Helene. But she'll be here in spirit. It's okay. We're going to stop by By The Way Bakery after this (laughs) (laughs) just to make sure we have a little taste. All right. So the way we kick off is the simple question, how is your heart doing today? Um, My heart feels taken care of. It is uh, vibrating in sync with a lot of people around me. And even if it wasn't the second that you folks walked in the door, it got back. So all is good. All is good. I'm so grateful. So on our way here, we were listening to the Akimbo podcast episode that you recently published called Origin Stories. And I laughed because, so this is how, I'm going to tell you how Adam and I listen to Akimbo. We will go through the feed and we'll read the very um, clever and fun and enticing title names. And then Anyone that like makes our heart jump or peaks our like makes our eyebrow raise or whatever it is, like it. So we pick it based on how we're feeling that day. And today, when I picked origin stories, I laughed because after I finished reading uh, Song of Significance when you sent us the draft, I felt so overwhelmed with like this is the closest thing that I've read. To, of your writing that's been published that feels like you are actually wearing your heart on your sleeve. Like if I were to be, if someone were to be like, what is Seth Godin like as a person? It would be like, it's this book. And yet somehow, even within that book, you don't even share the origin story of how it came to be. And I have to ask, one, why? Don't we hear more of those personal origin stories when you share so many others of phenomenal people around the world, but you are also one of them? And two, if you're comfortable, could you share the origin story of this book? Well, thank you for uh, teeing up so many important things that I want to talk about. Uh, Ursula Burns used to be the CEO of Xerox, and she was the first black woman to be CEO of a Fortune 500 company. And when she was interviewed, people would go on and on about her talent and her insight and her journey. And she said, the reason you're doing that is because if I'm not super special, you have a lot of explaining to do. Because only a super, super special black woman could possibly end up in my shoes. She said, I'm not super special. I just showed up. And for me, I uh, acknowledge the uh, revealing nature of so much social media that this is my experience, this is who I am, I'm being transparent. The problem with that is it lets other people off the hook. Because Mm. if you Mm -hmm. grew up 
you know, living outside uh, in a tent in Utica, New York, well, then I couldn't possibly achieve what you did because I didn't have that. Mm. Or if I had your benefits, right? So what I've tried to discipline myself to do with the work is the work to say, let me shine a light for you on what is possible if you could see it this way, regardless of the fact that I won the parent lottery or didn't. Mm. And so the, the purpose of the origin story podcast that you listened to, which I recorded a long time ago, is to point out that we are constantly telling ourselves our origin story. Yeah. Spider-Man is always bringing up that radioactive yeah. spider thing. Yeah. Superman can't get over the fact that Krypton's not around anymore. So if your origin story is serving you, if you say, well, I'm the kind of person that never backs down from a generous challenge, mm -hmm. keep going. But if your origin story is, well, I need to keep reiterating how bitter I am, then it might not be making your day better. So I wanted to just help people see their origin story. So in the case of the origin of this book, um, yeah, there's more of the person I seek to be mm. personally in this book mm -hmm. than in many of my other books. That on a good day, I try to be the person who wrote this book. I don't think that authenticity is a useful thing in social media because no one's authentic. Everyone is constantly putting on a show from the minute they get out of bed and put on their clothes. If they're a guy, if they shaved, well, what's authentic? That you have a mustache, you don't have a mustache. That's right. a choice. Mm. So I don't think people want you to be authentic. I think they want you to be consistent. Mm -hmm. They want Chuck Norris to be Chuck Norris, not whoever he feels like being today. So in the case of this book, what I've been watching for many years and which was highlighted for me by the Carbon Almanac and which recent events in which billionaires are humiliating their employees and firing them in public and acting in ridiculous ways is that industrialism, the system that made us all rich, has really run its course. And we have been indoctrinated, not just people who are from North America, but people all around the world have been indoctrinated from a young age to ask, will this be on the test? How do I get picked? How do I please the boss? Yep. What's the minimum amount of work I can do to get away with today? Because they're going to steal everything they can from me. And so we end up building a culture that supports industry as opposed to saying we need industry to support culture. Mm -hmm. And now that so many of us have faced mortality during the pandemic, someone we know got sick or passed away, People are looking and saying, is this the whole point? Is this all there is? That mm -hmm. we should burn as much oil as we can and then all die in a cataclysm? And what I wanted to take one last chance to do is say to people, we can sing a different song, mm -hmm. a song of meaning and connection and humanity, but only if we talk about it. So that was a rant, but you set me up. So thanks. No, there's, it's a rant. It's exactly what we need to be talking about and we need to hear. And I appreciate you bringing up the authenticity point because you were the first person who shared that perspective with me on authenticity that really challenged my own origin story because I feel like even, you know, as someone who started their career at 15 and authentic was always the word that was like being used to describe me or, and until now I still get asked about authenticity and do you think authenticity is still is important to storytelling? And I realized that most people have def different definitions of the word authentic. I mean, when you're talking about, you know, 
none of us are authentic. The moment we get up and we're always, you know, in this state of performance, it actually brings me to think of, and I understand the importance of consistency and like knowing that, you know, your teammate is going to show up and they're going to do their work, even if they're in a bad mood or even if they're having a, what, whatever day they're keeping the promises that they're making. And also, I remember when I was younger and I was speaking on authenticity, I used to say something about how you can only really be authentic to yourself. But even that is a choice. Even being authentic to yourself is something like, you have to be willing to ask yourself, who am I? Mm -hmm. And sometimes that is even more terrifying because then you really can't get away from, we can perform to ourselves all we want, but there are signals in our body that our body sends us to remind us, no, this isn't true. This doesn't feel true. And so what is your relationship with authenticity to oneself and engaging and asking that question? And how does that contribute to how someone, yourself included, can find meaning in the work that you do? So there's this expression, no place I'd rather be. Mm -hmm. But if we break it into pieces, wherever you are is where you want to be, unless you're in a prison camp or unless you're an abused spouse. Right. And mm. so you're there, maybe under stress, maybe with tension, because there's something you need out of it. You made a promise, you made a commitment, you need to get paid, you said you would, even though you don't want to be there. Mm -hmm. But you still want to be there because you showed up. And if you spend enough days in a row in places where you're thinking to yourself, there's another place I'd rather be, yeah, that stress is going to wear you out. And so when we think about what's the best job you ever had or what's a good relationship, at some level, beyond the short-term joy of you know what I want as a toddler right this minute, ice cream, please, we need to build a life where there's no place we'd rather be than what we're doing right now. This has been on my calendar for weeks, and there's no place I'd rather be right now than talking to the two of you. Thank you. Likewise. So does that mean you're being authentic to yourself today? It means that if I had grown up in a different century or a different country, I'd be a different self. But I decided that I was going to be the kind of teacher that I am and publish the kind of work I do a long time ago. The implications of that change what I see as important, what I think of as meaning, what I think of as authentic. So what's your definition of it then? Well, what I have, when you asked me about the voice in the book, mm -hmm. I think a lot about what would Seth Godin, the author of The Song of Significance, say right now and do right now? Mm. Because when I am consistent with that, mm. I feel like I'm a better version of me and I actually have a better day. So consistency is still showing up as more important in this scenario with yourself too, because I, I mean, and the aspect of writing also plays a really big role because you're, you're essentially not only writing for whoever your audience is and to be of service to other people, but it's also to be of service to yourself, to remind yourself like, this is the best version that I can be. Oh yeah. I mean, so Viktor Frankl, wrote something that was really profound. He said, just imagine that this is the second time through the life you're living, not the first, and you get the next five minutes over again. Well, How would you like to spend them? 
the next time someone yells at you at a parking lot, it's mm. a really useful lesson. <laughs> Hey, I'm Nora Tagori. For my new podcast, Rep, I've been examining a very personal story about how the misrepresentation of Muslims in media has impacted American society as a whole. I thought I knew the story, but the more I looked for answers, the more questions I had. What is your America story? I always felt like America stole me from myself, and it replaced it with a myth. Welcome to Rep. Listen to Rep on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. Are you comfortable sharing the actual origin story of Song of Significance, or is that something sure. you're... Yeah. yeah. Um, so I don't write books because I have to write books. Yes, tell us I why. can reach more people with a blog post by a factor of 10 in one day than spending a year of my life writing a book. Right. So I only write books. This is the last six books I've written. I only write books if I have no choice. Okay, if there's an idea that arises that will not let me go, mm. that can only be served mm -hmm. by a book. And so I had no book in mind. The Carbon Almanac wasn't a book I wrote. I coordinated it, mm -hmm. and I was totally fine saying, we're okay. I don't yep. need to write another book. And um, I needed, for family reasons, to be on the West Coast. And I got invited, just coincidentally, by a guy named Dan to help run a climate conference for 30 entrepreneurs who are building regenerative carbon uh, corporations. Well, and uh, so Dan, who's in Australia, was coordinating this thing. And um, it happened to be a week before the event I needed to be at. Mm -hmm. So I flew to San Francisco, rented an electric car, drove up north. And I hadn't been in a group like that in years because mm -hmm. I haven't flown in a long time. And um, it was a moving couple of days, and the person who was doing it with me, who I'd never met before, taught me about bees. And as soon as he talked to me about Jacqueline Freeman's concept of the song of increase, mm -hmm. I just was totally taken by it. So that night, they screwed up my hotel room, and I ended up not getting to place I ended up sleeping until 2 o'clock in the morning. I was pretty punch drunk. I downloaded Jacqueline's book, mm -hmm. and then the next day drove... Uh, eight and a half hours down to Los Angeles listening to it. And the story of the Song of Increase about how bees are organized without an organizer, coordinated without a coordinator, building these resilient systems where each bee is the full version of the bee itself, really connected with me. I saw a friend and I drove down to San Clemente to see another friend who uh, is going through some stuff and woke up, because I don't do time zones very well, at five o'clock in the morning and went for a swim in the ocean. Mm -hmm. And while I was swimming, I came as close to drowning as you can. Uh, the tide was pulling me faster than a motorboat. It was stunning. And I thought, well, that's the end of that. It's been a good run. I thought about how much I was going to miss my family. But I was like, okay, that's the end of that. And then for whatever reason, I decided I had an important story to tell and found something in me to swim back to shore. I just made it. And um, the next day I got a note from Dan. The reason he's in Australia and the reason he wasn't able to make it to the conference is that uh, his 10-year-old daughter was born uh, with a birth defect and they had tried to build a life that mm. would support her. And she had just passed away. Mm. And 
So for Frankie, and for so many people who have not gotten what they needed, I wanted to just show up and say, we need to think about this. We need to think about mm -hmm. what are we doing here? Where is our humanity? Not how do we make work soft? How do we mm -hmm. just tell people to do whatever you want? But the opposite. How do we make promises and keep them and do work that we're proud of for people who care? Thank you so much for sharing that. So honored. Adam, how did you feel the first time you finished reading the book? You had marked it all up. I did. I did mark it all up. And it, oh, I, I think I told you the story also. It didn't hit me like a normal Seth Godin book where I read stories or how you turn case studies into beautiful language. I didn't know what I was taking away from it. And then the next week of life and work unfolded. Mm -hmm. And I just kept hearing leadership opportunities in my head. And I felt like for me, that was one of the big takeaways. I can read it over and over, but I felt like you always kept coming back to opportunities for leadership, which comes back to choice, of course, and choosing to lead. And I am still finding that it's unfolding. I feel like it was also that it's like when somebody puts words to the experiences or the inklings that you already have, it doesn't just propel you forward in that direction and affirm that like, oh, this was this inkling, this sound, it was based in something, it was rooted in something much bigger. Like, oh, the way that I'm approaching being a leader, which feels really different and is actually in some ways in response to how we've been treated or in response to being in an agency or being signed with an agency in response to working for a big media corporation in response to like all of the noise that like makes people feel less important, that makes people feel like they're not good enough, that, that purposely puts people down so that they can literally feel like, well, at least I'm, I'm in the room or at least I'm here or at least I'm doing the work. And I felt, I felt like one of the things that we had been talking about was just like how that was never enough. And it's not about like lack of gratitude in that it wasn't enough. It was that it just never felt human enough. And it never mm -hmm. felt like it actually honored the, the very limited time that we have here. And you can see it and you can feel it. And I, I feel like I felt that a lot, like, post-pandemic, I have a, just a specific memory of um, like the first fashion month right after the pandemic. And I wasn't really certain of if I wanted to like attend or anything. And I went just to support a couple of friends and I saw everyone's face and they it felt like they were in shock, but refused to acknowledge what had just happened. And so nobody, besides the fact that they, the, re the reaction of like, wow, that was wild. Like nobody actually... <laughs> Uh, went pat like beyond that went deeper and it, and I remember this like shock that we had which was like oh we have to do something about this because we can't just have had this massive there can't there is very few experiences that can be bigger than what we just experienced in our lifetime that can that would allow us this time because the world was shut down and that we were all in this state of like uncertainty and fear and if that happens and we and it's still not enough for us to get out of our heads and be like hey how are you mm -hmm. like are we doing something that matters like is this drama is this really is this all necessary then maybe the problem is always with us 
and it and I'm and I'm not saying that it's not there aren't problems and issues that in the systems of like how we work, but if we want to actually do something about it, it has to start with us. And so in reading Song of Significance, I felt like Adam and I were like the exact audience that it was written for. It was like, hey guys, like if you're trying to take on this responsibility of being a leader, here are ways that I feel like can help um, guide you in that. And not only in how you lead, but how you are of service to those who choose to sign up to work with you. I can even add to that. Yeah. Coming back to like how it's come, it all comes back to you. And I was listening to Akimbo this morning and it was about distribution and media distribution and mm. gaining an audience, mm-hmm. right? And the numbers. And I was immediately thinking of how I can do that for my own business and just thinking strategically. And when I came away from Song of Significance, it was almost as if you were saying, you can read all of my past work and strategize, but at the end of the day, it comes down to you. And kind of how you said you have one last thing that you wanted to share. It sounds, it feels like that one last, like at the end of the movie where the person looks and it's like, the answer is just you. And then yeah. it, 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 you can only strategize so much. And then even for the COVID example that you just gave with Fashion Week, we didn't, we had few examples of how to lead in that moment. And so there was nothing to strategize around. Maybe it was less, it wasn't even that it was few examples. It was that there was a lot of space where it was, I think now I don't, I was like, why did I just bring that up? But I realized it's because it was the first time, because then we put that virtual conference on with Philip because it was the first time we were like, oh wait, there's space here. We're seeing directly that like nobody actually knows what to do right now. So you get to just choose to do something about it. And we're just going to like choose to do what we know would be best of service to And you have to acknowledge that there's sometimes nothing to be done externally. You're actually at at the end of the day, you can do all of these things and it's still, you have to recognize opportunity for leadership, which is a lot harder for me personally than recognizing opportunity for business growth or for for anything, even in relationship matters, it's more the openness of leadership opportunities. Yeah. So if we were to talk about fashion for a minute, yeah, and you two know way more than I do. I don't know. I'm wearing a chef coat designed by you, Seth. So you tell me. Well, the fashion industry, yeah, which uh, now has created uh, billionaires, mm-hmm. that it is actually more valuable in many ways than any other industry when you think about you know, Louis Vuitton, people like that. Yeah. As an industry, what it does is it says to its customers, you need to dress like this or you will look stupid. What it says to its employees is you need to follow this person and listen to this magazine or you will look stupid. And what it says to the people who make this stuff is you need to work for a dollar an hour or else you're fired. Yeah. And so there's an enormous number of cogs in the system. Yeah. And it makes all of them lesser. That people might be attracted to it because it feels like a place to speak your authentic truth and to matter. But human nature and culture, the desire to fit in, to not take too much of a risk, pushes every component of it toward this mind-numbing industry. Mm. And what first struck me about the two of you is that you could do way more of that and you instead have said, nope, we want to lead, we don't want to manage. We want to invent and narrate, we don't want to be the victim of the system. But you feel the pressure every day 
to be cogs in the system. The people who are sponsoring you or listening to you or the Instagram, all of it is, well, this would go better if we did it more like the normal way. Yeah. And so as human beings, we started down this path because we needed a roof and healthcare yep. and food. Mm -hmm. But for many people, we solved that problem. So now what are we doing? Right? And now what we're doing is playing this weird game on a game on a game on a game, all about winning the race to the bottom. Mm -hmm. And the problem with the race to the bottom is you might win. Hmm. Okay. I want to stay with that for a bit, but thank you for sharing that. Seth, what's a question that you're asking yourself these days? Um, it has been a long journey to earn the benefit of the doubt from a bunch of people to be able to narrate for them to turn on lights. Hmm. And I don't want to waste that. And I need to find the place that combines impact and leverage with my ability to make promises and keep them. So because I don't get on planes for work anymore, I'm not doing what I used to do, which is five or 10 speeches a month somewhere. Mm -hmm. That was very pleasing because it's ridiculously good way to make an income, but it's also, yeah. I was busy. Mm -hmm. No one could say, what are you doing? I could say, well, I, have to do, 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 do. I was just in this country, in this country. Now I'm intentionally doing less of the busy work around the work and that creates space to do the work. So how do I open the door for say the 1900 people at the Carbon Almanac yeah. or uh, my friends Eva and Aveline to build something on their behalf, mm. where I can help open doors for them. It doesn't have to be the Seth show all the time. And so I'm asking myself hard questions about what's the best way for me to spend Monday? Because I don't get Monday over again. Mm -hmm. What's the best? Where are people enrolled in a journey of working their way forward? Because I'm going to do better work with people who are enrolled than trying to just yell at people on the street corner who don't get it. It's funny that you mentioned the Seth show because like, and I mentioned this a little bit in the beginning and I, I noticed how you, how you answer around just like speaking directly about like you and your experiences and you still give obviously a, a very thoughtful answer, but it doesn't feel like the Seth show to me. I know that, you know, it's Seth's blog and like people know who you are and know your name and maybe even Adam had to read your books and Babson for school, but <laughs> <laughs> like, sure. But it's, but the, but the words, it's, it's the work and the, it feels like it's always been the work and the words. And so, and I say this because, you know, my approach to storytelling and even the investigations that I do, I do, I very clearly and openly say, hey, I'm telling the story because I need it. And then there's all there's like this layer of the personal journey, and then there's the layer of the story and the work. And I figure out what that looks like so it, it can best be of service to whoever we're um we're we have in mind. But how is it that, you know, all of these years that you've been doing the work that you're doing, and it feels like you're I don't want to say that you still get, you know, criticism or people who have whatever. It's not, it's not that. It's not about the noise or the feedback or the non-believers per se, but so I've never had my picture on the cover of a fashion magazine. But I think you will understand what it feels like when someone points out to you that your work with Adam has created a whole new generation of journalists, a whole new generation of people who are speaking up, even if they're not from the traditionally dominant 
sector, sector of society. And that's only because you showed up. And so it may feel like sometimes you're getting paid or asked to put on the North Show, but in fact, you're building a whole new foundation for people. And that's incredibly generous and really important. And so, like you, I'm trying to do that with intent. And because the world is different than it was five years ago, I have more space to do that. Mm -hmm. But that is what I'm spending most of my days thinking about. Mm -hmm. You don't have to spend most of your days thinking about it. It just naturally happens. But I think over time, it will become more clear to you how many people are using your example to remind themselves that they're capable of doing this work. Hmm. Well, thank you for saying that. It's in, it's it's exactly why I've been reflecting on this more lately. For rep, when we decided to do rep, I went against the recommendation of some of the people working on it and decided I didn't want to put my name on the cover and I didn't want to put my photo on the cover, even though I knew that would exponentially grow the show, but that wasn't the point. And it's like the people who received rep and now we have rep club and we have people from around the world who are actually engaging and going on their own rep journeys felt like it was theirs. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of, that was the point that I was trying to get to with like you saying the Seth show, but it always felt like, and it still feels like the work has always been for the people. And so it's, I, I wonder if it's this like conscious awareness that, you know, of wanting to kind of take a step back because then you see the work flourish in the way that you maybe intended for it to, or it feels like it's more um, potent almost. But have you ever considered like sharing more of yourself in the work? Like, do you ever think that one day you would write a memoir? No. And you've consciously made that decision because what? Because it's, it's so, uh, it's tempting, but it's a lazy shortcut. But what, what do you mean a lazy shortcut though? Cause it's just another thing that would be of benefit yeah, in but different it's ways. That, no, so on the wall behind you is a picture of Annie Kenny. And it's one of the biggest photographs in my office. Who was Annie Kenny? Annie Kenny is the reason you are here today. When Annie Kenny was 19 years old, she went to a meeting in England where her member of parliament was speaking. Winston Churchill was there too. He was only 25. And she, he said, the member of parliament said, any questions? And Annie stood up and said, when are women going to get the right to vote? And he said, uh, little woman, please sit down. And she did it three more times. And he had her arrested. And while she was in jail, the suffragette movement took off in England. And women got the vote as a direct result of people talking about connecting and creating new circles around the little seed that Annie amplified. And um, that's what heroism looks like. And the problem with someone like me telling their story with lots of little adventures in it is that it's about me and I only want to write about the reader. And mm. that's because me writing about Annie Kenny gives people the fuel 
to imagine what they could do 100 years later, mm-hmm. whereas me writing about me limits possibilities. It doesn't open possibilities. Does it limit or is it just not as impactful? Well, it's just I would spend time talking about and promoting something instead of something else. And so, it's it's so it's a testament to how you choose to use your time. Like it's just very simple. It's not I feel like I was I've been thinking about it a lot more deeply and you're just like, yeah, but limited time, remember? And this is how I want to choose to do it. So then what is your own personal relationship with your story? Like how do you personally engage with your evolution, with how you rethink things, with how you're growing because I know that 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 has been such a big part of how you value your time is rethinking things and asking questions over and over again. And then once in a while, we get something like Song of Significance that's birthed from all of those experiences. But I would love to know how you do that with yourself. Um, I've only been inside one person's head. So I don't know if other people have the same noise in their head. There's a word that was just invented called sonder, S-O-N-D-E-R. Yes, we love that word. Which is the moment you realize that other people have a noise in their head too. Yeah. And all you can imagine is their noises, like your noise, but of course it can't be. So a woman had a tantrum in a parking lot yesterday, called me a bunch of names and then drove off in a huff and probably ran somebody over, who knows. In a court of law, who was right? I was right. I didn't do anything wrong. This woman had some other noise going on that had nothing to do with me. Yeah. And in the old days, I wouldn't have realized that. I would have just been constantly re-examining what did I do that caused this to happen. Mm. Now, I'm not in the position of saying, so it's her fault. Mm -hmm. Instead, I'm saying, she has a story, I have a story, there are two stories. Mm -hmm. But when I need to make decisions, and I think that's mostly what I do for a living is make decisions, I think about intentionally what would Seth do? And mm. I've written down enough of my decisions that there's a track record. I just right. trained Jet, Chat GPT in 9,000 of my posts. So you can, I can ask it what Seth would do. And it knows because it talks in my voice and has read all of them. So um, but what it comes right down to it, it's this this is totally changeable. It's not easy. It's not convenient. It's really difficult. It will upset the people around you. But these are sunk costs. These are a gift from your former self. Your former self thought it was a good idea to be X, Y, or Z. And you're allowed to say to that former self, no, thank you. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate you offering me this gift, this law degree, this spiritual practice, this reputation. No, thank you. I'd rather not accept that gift from you. Because it's a gift. And as soon as it stops serving you, you should decline it. Hi there. I want to share with you a good deed opportunity. At ICU Foundation, we work to alleviate local homelessness and directly serve community members in need. We do this through our community pantry, family food bags, hygiene kits, snack bags, winter care packages, and grocery gift cards. Lately, we've been seeing incredible impact by partnering with businesses and organizations to host volunteer events where their teams make and distribute the ICU care bags. ICU is our response to a community member who, when we asked what she needed most, responded with, we just need to be seen. So 
If you would like to join us in seeing and serving the community, email us at contact at isyfoundation.org. Okay, back to the show. What do you think the biggest way people get in their own way to be able to recognize their own sense of worth and value and know that they are worthy of in, of singing the song of significance? Okay, so there's two parts. The first part is the indoctrination, because yeah. if we were, if it was invented today, no one would sign up for it. For if, if we just launched from scratch, right, right. industrialism or Facebook yeah. or no one would say, yeah, sign me up. It yeah. happened gradually. But the second thing about Sonder is, when in doubt, look for the fear. Mm. Always. It could be the fear of death. It could be the fear of being left out. It could be the fear of a lack of status. It could be the fear of a lack of sexual connection. Always the fear. That's what it's always going to come from. Somebody who is screaming at a clerk, well, they fear that they will never be respected again. They fear that their peers will think less of them because they didn't get this ticket that they were sure. Always, mm. always, always look for the fear. And because we live in this digital, logic-based world, we litigate it. We say, no, 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 I can show you the facts about why you were wrong. Yeah, but this person's not arguing about facts. They're mm -hmm. arguing about their emotions. If you want to understand why people vote the way they do, look for the fear. Look for status, look for affiliation, both of which are driven by fear. And even people who have nothing to fear, who have good health, plenty of money in the bank, people around them who support them, they're still making decisions based on status and affiliation, which mm -hmm. are driven by fear. Was there a fear that showed up for you repeatedly when you were first starting out that you faced head on and you're more aware of today? Oh, I was really aware of my fear at the beginning. What was it? Um, but I want to, I didn't answer your previous question, which is okay. why don't people sign up yes. to lead? Why don't they sign up to do something of significance? Because they're afraid the world will say yes and then they'll be on the hook. Mm -hmm. And fish don't like being on the hook. Humans should want to be on the hook. But what we got indoctrinated in from the time we're four years old is you can get in trouble if you make a promise. So better to just lay low. Don't raise your hand. Right. So in my case, um, before we sat down, I was showing you the stuff I did at the software company. I was going at a very fast pace in 1983. Yeah. I'd been the second person in my business school class. I lucked into a job that didn't look as good as it was when I took it. Mm -hmm. um, I'd been offered a summer job at Parker Brothers, which was my dream, because I love games, and a little tiny software company. And everything said I should have taken the Parker Brothers job. And for whatever reason, I didn't. Two weeks after the summer started, Parker Brothers laid off 200 people in the division, every person. I would have lasted two weeks. But at this other software company, they gave me all of these opportunities, and I ran with them. But I left there to get married in 1986, and there were no companies just like that to work at in New York. I never wanted to be my own boss. I just wanted someone to leave me alone and let me make stuff. Yeah. That's all. Yeah. And so I started, I went to the book business because someone I worked with, the software company, said he would help me. He never returned a phone call ever again after I arrived in New York, so he never helped me. Um, but I had already committed. Here I was. And I sold my first book the first day for $5,000, which I had to split with my co-author. 
And then I got 800 rejection letters in a row over the course of a year. That meant every day I would open my mailbox. They had mailboxes in those days. And there would be five letters. They had stamps in those days. And five times a day, I would get a letter that said, we looked at your proposal. We hate it. We hope you die. And <laughs> this went on and on and on. And that gets right to imposter syndrome. It gets right to feeling like a fraud. And it gets right to, I'm going to have to go get a job at a bank as a teller because it's over. And that fear fueled me for 20 years, right? And so, you know, in, what was it, 2002, when I got invited to speak at TED, that's not enough to make the fear go away because be, you never know, right? And so this feeling of inadequacy mm -hmm. causes you to sometimes push forward or do projects that ultimately you might not want. Like I did the book Email Addresses of the Rich and Famous, which was the first book uh, about email like that. And I listed the email addresses of famous people. <laughs> it was super clever. It wasn't worth me putting my name and months of my life into writing this book. But someone was going to buy it and I was a cog in the system. And there are people who have far less than I do who weren't making compromises like that. And so the big wake-up call for me was one day saying, yeah, but if you keep making these compromises because you're worried that 20 years ago you were going to go out of business, right. you're going to spend your whole life doing that. Mm -hmm. Don't do that anymore. New story. I think a lot about how we are always like in the process and I think the more that you get used to surrendering in the process, the more you trust that the art will come together when it's meant to, that the writing, that the book, that the that the project, whatever it is. And, you know, Song of Significance was written in two weeks, right? Well, it was written in seven years, but it was typed in two weeks. Typed in two weeks. But that's what I'm saying, right? The process took all of this time, but in that in those seven years and more, you're having all the experiences and you're learning what surrender looks like. You're learning what receiving and creating the space that you need to type out the book looks like. Does that? Do yeah, but I, that? I think we need to put a, a, a very clear marker for people who are listening to this, which is you don't create space by making smaller promises and retreating. Yeah. You create space by making bigger promises and keeping them. Ooh. So after the mm. uh, email addresses of the rich and famous, yeah. I spent five years, get, maybe more, getting Stanley Kaplan, the person named Stanley Kaplan, yeah. to sell me the rights to do Kaplan test prep books. I got them into that business. And I used one of those. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. I'm> like, <laughs> so I was like, it, yeah, me too. It was a great deal for them. And it was a very big project. Yeah. I hired six full-time people to work on it, and it was a lot of uh, work. But they decided they wanted a better deal. And the way that they were going to get a better deal was by cutting me out. And they sent lawyers to every meeting we had with the publisher. And they were undermining all of the work we wanted to do. We were getting very good at dealing with a difficult partner. Wow. So I called together the team and I said, this is a third of our revenue, but we're getting very good at dealing with difficult people. I'd like to just say you win and give them all the rights. 
and walk away. Mm. And to my team's credit, they all backed me, even though it meant we might not be able to employ everybody. Mm-hmm. And in less than 60 days, we replaced all of that business mm. with even bigger projects because we became the kind of institution mm. that was willing to earn our freedom. Mm-hmm. So we sold uh, the Information Please Business Almanac and we sold very complicated, difficult books that sold lots and lots of copies because we knew that we could now do something that wasn't a book like the Smiley Dictionary, which I made in a weekend, but was a very complicated, difficult promise to make. Right. So we put ourselves into a different category by making a different promise. Mm. And so when I became a professional speaker, if you don't have anything booked on Tuesday and someone calls you up and offers you $500 to speak on Tuesday, well, you don't have anything else on Tuesday, you should say yes. No, you shouldn't because now you're a $500 speaker. Mm-hmm. And so... You say, no, when you're ready to have a really expensive keynote speaker, that's me. I bring a different thing to that. Yeah. Thank you very much. And so there were a lot of Tuesdays where there was nothing because you're making a different promise to a different audience of people. This is what I do if you want it. Mm-hmm. But it's tempting in this day and age, and a lot of people we see online are trying to persuade us that if you just get some a nice floppy hat and go on Instagram, you can become some sort of magical influencer. Mm-hmm. That's not the truth. Yeah. The truth is if you create value for people at a different level, you will get compensated at a different level. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I feel like we've uh, definitely been, it was a a risky decision for us to make to start saying no when even when we needed it. Yep. And I remember the first time we did that. Do you remember in the pandemic, the first time we did that and we got an offer for something and it was like pretty good money and it was the pandemic. And so we had lost all of the speaking gigs. And um, I was like, no, because if we say yes to this, like then it makes me this quote unquote influencer, whatever that I didn't want to be. And we just need to have a little bit more trust. And we said no to it and it hurt. And then literally that week, I think we got, we were able to, we had a brand come to us and be like, hey, this pandemic is happening. People are really afraid. We don't know what to do, but we think maybe you guys do. And we were able to, it helped us like stay afloat. And it really, um, and I always go back to that now because I've been thinking, Our I interviewed our friend Bobby Kim or Bobby Hundreds yesterday. And he was talking about like, he he was using the metaphor of like the Coachella lineup bill and how like there's the headliner and then the emerging artists or whatever, but how he sees like in his own career, sometimes you're the headliner, sometimes you're like you're the emerging artist and you just toggle back and forth between them because it's not always fun to be a headliner. You don't want to be singing the same songs over and over and over again on talk shows. Sometimes it's more fun to be in the recording studio and getting creative, but there's this no that like we don't realize that it's about the toggling back and forth. It's not meant to be like you start small and then you get big. And you really helped us so much with that because I I I think I say the phrase smallest viable audience like once a week to the team. Because now I know who they are. Mm-hmm. I know them by name. I've hugged them. You've met them. And I'm like, these are the core people that we serve. They show up every time. And I'm blown away by it. And I'll literally say to Adam, if we can just get by and do this forever. That's that would that's the that's the dream because I remember you sharing one time where when you like at, I think at one point had like 60 employees, you were like, "Yeah, no, nah, this is not it." And said goodbye to that and realized expansion 
or success doesn't have to mean expansion. Success can just mean using your time exactly how you want. Exactly. Well said. Well, it's it's how we reflect on the advice that you give us. So I just want you to know, hey, it's working. We share it all the time. We're so grateful for that. What is your relationship with asking questions to yourself? I don't think that's my method. Because you, you write a lot of questions. You share a lot of questions yes. for us to think about. Yes, there's... Uh, more than 300 questions in the book. Yeah. So, but I, so I took symbolic logic in college. I think everyone should take symbolic logic. You can I've take never it on, even heard of that. You can take it online for free. Um, symbolic logic started with, you know, Aristotle has a belly button. Aristotle is a philosopher. Therefore, all philosophers have belly buttons. Well, clearly that's not true because having a belly button and being a philosopher aren't related except in Aristotle's case. So if you think about logic as a series of sentences, can you then come to a conclusion? Mm -hmm. Symbolic logic says, let's boil it down to symbols. Aristotle is the letter A. And right, so we can just say A equals something, blah, blah. And you can write down the symbols and then you can learn that there is one and only one true thing that can be determined from organizing these symbols. And this is what's missing from politics and rational discussion in so many ways. Because if you understand symbolic logic, right? If, if you say, uh, steel is a metal, all metals rust, then it has to be true that steel will rust. Right. Right? So when I'm trying to make a decision I begin with the symbolic logic of it. I love this. Okay. Walk us through. Well, someone has done this. Someone else has done this. Mm -hmm. Someone else has done this. Much of the time, doing this leads to that. So I'll lay something out and okay. decide if that's a good plan or not. Mm -hmm. And then I will leave myself space. And in that space, which could last years, the space, I am probably interrogating parts of my brain, but I don't do it in the form of formal questions. Mm -hmm. And then one day, I feel like I have an insight. So the first time this really worked great for me was when we started one of the very first internet companies in 1990. That's before you were born. And um, it was taking us a year, nine months to a year, to get a big company to buy an email marketing campaign. That's a lot of sales calls. We couldn't sustain it. So I knew we needed a name for what we were doing. Mm -hmm. That if we had a name for what we were doing, and I could point symbolically other things that had been embraced by the world that had names. I said, so oh we need to have a name for this. But then I didn't do anything for three days. And then I, on Tuesday, I said, I'm getting in the shower. And when the hot water runs out, there will be a name. I'll stay in the shower as long as I need to until we have a name. And that's where permission marketing came from, which is I knew what the project was. I just didn't know what the answer to the project was. Yeah. And that phrase, permission marketing, led to a $30 billion industry. Two words. Because that's what MailChimp does. They do permission marketing. What would you have called it if it wasn't called permission marketing? And now everyone, oh, I know what that is because I know what marketing is. I know what permission is. It worked. Well, but it can be something super trivial too. Like, 
you know, what's the best way? Should, I, should we drive from here to there? Should we take the bus from here to there? I'm giving a speech in Washington, D.C. Should I take the train? There's a logical way to do the math. Mm -hmm. Maybe you don't have to wait on that. You know the answer. So, no, I don't ask myself the question, but I try to establish the foundation to make a decision that I don't have words for. <laughs> Why are you laughing? That was like the response to that question in the form of like a Seth Godin book. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> like... Next class. Do you have any questions? Do you have any thoughts? Do you have any shares? Hi there. Noor here from At Your Service. At Your Service is a storytelling company. We tell stories as a form of service. And the way I think about it is story first, medium second. Meaning, we don't think, hey, I really want to produce a podcast. What should it be about? No, we think of it as we have a story we want to tell. What is the best medium, the best way to tell it? Maybe it is a podcast. Maybe it's a documentary series, a virtual talk, a speaker series, a dinner party. Maybe it's a book club. The list goes on and on. We also love being of service to companies and brands and nonprofits to help them tell the best story possible so that they can serve their audience and their communities. So if you want to check out more of our work, you can do so at ays.media. You can also find the transcripts for all our podcast episodes right there. And if you're enjoying this podcast right now, it would mean so much to me if you could leave a review and give us some feedback. Let us know if you like this style of podcast or if you're looking for something else. And of course, if you have any stories you'd like to pitch for us, you can do that through our website as well. As always, at your service. Well, out of curiosity, when you it was when you were talking about the 1980s, when you wanted people to let you build things and leave you alone, what were you in the 80s? What did you want to build? What were you interested in building? Games. Okay. I love simple games. I can't play video games. I've made products about video games. They make me dizzy. Um, I, The Prisoner's Dilemma, logical games, games where mm. human beings confront unstable equilibria and each other really resonate with me. And I'm good at making those games. And so for me, a packaged book, the kind I used to make, was a game. So if I give you the Smiley Dictionary, which I wrote before there were emojis, and you can see, oh, that's how you make a Mickey Mouse, you can now imagine what the next one. I just gave you a bunch of tools to mm. have fun. I opened the door for that. I didn't tell you the answer. I just created this environment. Or mm. when I did the Perry Mason computer game, I knew who Perry Mason was. I knew what the music was. I knew who uh, Earl Stanley Gardner was. I had 200 books to choose from. What's the arc to get people to imagine themselves in this world? So that was really fun for me. And I felt like I had a unique competency and I liked playing with how the symbols all fit together. I was talking to someone who has a nonprofit this morning. She brought up the fundraising. She said, oh, I hate the fundraising. I said, do you think you're unique? Do you think there's anyone in, in the nonprofit world that likes fundraising? So I can't wait to go back to raising money. No, that just comes with what you do. Yeah. And what I discovered is 
it's almost inconceivable that someone will say, go sit in this room and make up games and we'll leave you alone. Go sit in this room and come up with ideas for books and we will leave you alone. That just doesn't happen. And so there's this other heavy lifting that comes with it as part of the deal if you want to be in a, an economy that has some scarcity to it. Mm. What's your current favorite game to play? Most of the people in my life don't like traditional games. <laughs> Because my next question, if not that, was going to be, it's game night. What are the games that you're bringing? My friend Peter is one of the most decorated and celebrated game designers of all time. Wow. We went to Peter's house. Mm. And I said, hey, Peter, you want to play a game? And his wife and my wife both said, no. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there's a game called Wordmaster Pro. Yes, on I downloaded that because of you. On the iPad. I play it every single day. What I love about Wordmaster Pro is I get to play by myself. I'm not playing against some 12-year-old remotely. So no one's cheating. And <laughs> the rules are so perfect. Like, you needed to invent the English language to have Scrabble work. But it does. Like, the English language is exactly perfect. There's just the right number of two-letter words. There's just the right feeling you get when you get a K or a U, <laughs> knowing that there aren't that many good things to do with it. Everything about Scrabble makes me happy. And I beat it at the expert level like two-thirds of the time, which also makes me happy. Because if I beat it all of the time, I wouldn't play anymore. If I beat it none of the time, I wouldn't play anymore. It's just right. Oh my God. I strongly recommend Wordmaster Pro. Uh, and that's just Scrabble Mobile. Yeah, basically. That's amazing. Well, Do you journal? <laughs> like personally? I blog. No, I know that you write every single day. And we all get to read it. Right. And that no, I used to, I did it. morning pages because my friend Brian said yeah. I had to. Yeah. And? After three weeks, there was just so much good stuff coming. I couldn't keep up. So I had to stop. <laughs> <laughs> so you had to stop and just continue publishing whatever is coming? Yeah. I mean, like there was too much for me to keep. I was going to have to hire a team to deal with all the stuff that was coming out of morning pages. And that was making me stress. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's. I, I, I think it's perfect for you because it's like you, it's funny because now I'm like coming, coming full circle with this like inner frustration that I had with like, Seth, why doesn't Seth share all of these like stories of his life to the world? And I'm like, oh, this is how he does it. This is really actually truly how he does it. Cause these are, this is how his brain physically works and his heart physically works and we get it and we receive it exactly as we're meant to. So I'll stop asking. Well, I'm flattered. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so final question, and then one more little fill in the blank that we do. The final question is, you know, Adam and I's, Adam and I is our company, our approach, our life, whatever. It's all, it comes down to service and this phrase of at your service. And I think that that's also part of why we were so excited about Song of Significance, because it had the B on it and the B is like very um, important to us. And just this mindset of service not being something that um, is ever seen as a deficit, but only as something that is more ex is expansive and light. And I don't know if we ever told you how we named it at your service, but we were, it was when I was working on Sold in America and I was spent four years investigating the sex trade in the US and I was in a very, very dark place and I wasn't doing well. And we went to, I think this might be Sato's first time hearing why. <laughs> That's funny. Um, we, uh, a teacher had invited me, like a spiritual teacher who I had never really had a conversation with, had said, you know, come out to Napa Valley 
I host this like retreat about the heart and this might be a good place for you to just kind of decompress. So my team was a little freaked out about it and I went because I had to, I, I, I didn't sure. have it in me to work. And it was the first time that I had ever experienced a spiritual community that like, it was just about service and heart work and just, you know, really what does it mean to show up in this world as a human being and, and, um, and lead with love and in service. And there's this one person who was there and he would like, if he saw you, maybe if maybe I like just swallowed or something and he noticed maybe I would be, I was thirsty, he would run and go get a cup of water and he would bring it to you. And I'd be like, thank you. And he'd be like at your service. And he rushed to do this. And it wasn't a part of the, it was just this person who just rushed to do it. And I remember the first time it happened, I said to Adam, I'm so uncomfortable. Like, why did he say that? I almost was offended. I was like, I didn't ask you to do that. Like, why are you, but that was all me. That was all my own projection. That was all my, like, I don't want anybody to do anything for me. I need to, I can figure things out for myself. But he was bringing me the cup of water because it made him happy and that he wanted to be of service. And I realized it was this like mindset. And so I took it upon myself as a challenge and Adam and I started like trying to say it and get used to the phrase on our tongue. And like at the more we would say it, the more we would mean it, the more my entire worldview changed where everything was an opportunity to be of service and it was all an expansion. It was all something that made us feel lighter. It was always something that it wasn't ever a favor. It was, this is how we, this is how we live. This is how we move. This is, it, it just felt so different. And as somebody who loves words and who does work in service, what does the word service mean to you personally? And how do you think people who are, you, who are running their own businesses, who are responsible for telling stories, can rethink this concept of service to better be of service? You know me too well. You ask me questions that you know I'm just going to dive in on. <laughs> When you set out to start the company with the name, I think what you meant to call it is to be of service. But you ended up calling it at your service. <laughs> and they mean two totally file different new things. paperwork now. <laughs> Let me tell you why they mean two different things. Okay. And why you have grown mm. into the incredible power of the second one. To be of service is about you. To be of service is about a posture of hospitality. Mm. At your service is daring the recipient to earn it, to repay it, Whoa. to level Whoa. up. Right. So when you show up with rep, mm. you're saying, yeah, we bled to make this for you. <laughs> Now, what are you going to do? Because this is at your service. We're not here to entertain oh my you. God. We're here to challenge you Whoa. to become what you are capable of. And I don't think that's what you started to do, but that is definitely what you have done. Thank you for saying that. Thank you. Service to you. As a word. Let's play with that. My company is called Do You Zoom. 
Do you zoom? And so I'm doing something similar, which is I'm putting it right back on the reader. Hmm. And I'm saying, here's what I got. What do you got? What ruckus are you going to make? Mm-hmm. And um, there's a word in Italian called sprezzatura. Mm-hmm. Sprezzatura is service without drama. It is the insouciant, uh, liner, unlined Italian jacket from Naples. It is the flair and the look and the approach of awareness of the person you're seeking to connect with mm. and offering service in such a way that it doesn't command reciprocity. And mm. sprezzatura is the opposite of what would happen at a three-star Michelin restaurant in France, where they're making the big show with the silver bowls and everything mm-hmm. else. It is the care and generosity that comes from showing up with empathy. Yeah. And so for me, I am pretty vigilant about the manipulation of hustle, which mm-hmm. comes from a different version of service, which is unasked for, but demands reciprocation. Mm-hmm. But I am in awe of Sprezzatura, mm-hmm. that when someone is able to do it at that level, mm-hmm. not to show off, but because they get it, that feels to me like an essential human connection that we left behind when we left the village. Mm-hmm. And it's a way of bringing that feeling back. Sprezzatura. Mm. There you go. They named a loaf of bread at Danny Meyer's cafe after that word because I blogged about it. No <laughs> way. So you can go in and ask for some sprezzatura bread and they will happily serve it to you. I would love to do that, except my favorite bread, bread is the gluten-free bread gonna, that you've made. I was going to say. <laughs> the gluten-free <laughs> bread that the By The Way Bakery makes, to be clear. That mm-hmm. By The Way Bakery makes. Oh my gosh. There's one near you. Go to btwbakery.com. Wait, somebody actually, didn't somebody just tell us that they found By The Way Bakery at Whole Foods recently? Yes. yes. Was it you? Oh, oh. it was <laughs> Didn't you? You got it for your mom. My mom got it. She's uh, dairy and gluten-free. Perfect. Yeah. That's amazing. Give her a hug for us. Yes. All right, the fill in the blank. If you really knew me, you would know. You can share one, two, or three things. Your favorite thing. Talk well, it's not. Is it my favorite thing? Is that what the question means? I'm questioning the question yeah. here. No, no, no. I'm saying you talking about yourself is your favorite thing. You know, that's why we're doing this. If you really knew me, you would know. You would know that I have extreme but correct views about dark chocolate. <laughs> that's That my spiritual home base is in Algonquin Park, Canada, three hours north of Toronto. Mm. And that I'm a teacher. Mm. Thanks for being our friend and our teacher. Love you both. Love Love you you. so much. Thank you. I couldn't have written this book without the two of you. The examples you've shown, the kindness and care you bring to everything you do, the way we've engaged about authenticity and consistency and where the world is going, it just lights me up. Thank you, both of you. We love you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Podcast Nur is an AYS production. Producers include myself, Adam Khafif, and Sara Isa. Editing, mixing, and mastering by Bahid Frazier. 
The theme song is the song Thunderdome, Welcome to America by Portugal the Man. Extra gratitude and thanks to our storyteller, Seth Godin. His book, Song of Significance and the Carbon Almanac will change your life. As always, at your service.